All right, turn to Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're going to begin this morning by reading through this passage. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered there, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus... Perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sons are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed, And went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, as we continue, continue into our Christmas season, continue considering the Christ, not only of Bethlehem, but the Christ of Capernaum, the Christ of Galilee, the Christ of Jerusalem, the Christ of Calvary. I pray that you will draw our hearts and minds to reflect to meditate, to concentrate on who is Jesus. How does he impact lives? What is the purpose of that which Mark is sharing with us today? And Father, what should we do with it? How should it impact our lives? What kind of a difference should it make? As we look at this passage, I pray that you'll help us to see the truths that are here anew. I pray that your spirit will work in our hearts and minds, that he will convince and convict And God changes us to be more like our Savior, Jesus Christ, for it's in his name we pray. Amen. We've never seen anything like this. Isn't that an exciting thing to think about? Don't you want to be there when something original, something unusual happens? Often people will ask, were you there? Did you see this? Did you see that on a great event? And here we have Jesus Christ in his ministry, and the bottom line at the end of it, The bottom line reaction to this ministry at the end of it is the folks looked and they were just amazed. And as they glorified God, they said, when we look at Jesus Christ, we have never seen anything like this. The amazing thing about this is it all revolves around the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ and what the gospel offers to us through Jesus Christ is unique to Christianity. When you think of all the religions of the world, how many of them are offering you forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with God based on nothing that you have to do? And that's a big part of the story that's here. It's also a part of the story that causes us to stand back and wonder for just a moment. This story corresponds with man's greatest need. Again, even though we're coming up to Christmas, we need to remember why Christmas is even there. Christmas is there Because it's God's solution to your greatest need and mine. We are sinners. 
And at one time, if you haven't accepted Christ, you still may be here. We are sinners standing before a holy God under his wrath. And regardless of what some folks will tell you nowadays or some religions have cooked up, you stand under God's wrath destined for eternity in hell and justly so. We all deserve that. Without Bethlehem, which leads to Jerusalem, which leads to Calvary, and then an empty tomb and an ascension, we are without hope. And as we go through the Advent season, last week we talked about hope. There's hope in Jesus Christ. This week the readings are all revolving around preparation for his coming and faith. And this story here is all about faith. It's about faith, not faith that's hidden. Not faith that's some just emotional interior thing, but the faith that James talked about. Show me your faith by your works. Faith in action is what we're going to see here as we look at this whole story. But it's faith created because there's hope in Jesus Christ. Your greatest need is forgiveness of sin and a right relationship with God. You realize anybody who's ever lived is a sinner. And throughout all eternity, there are going to be sinners. And the only difference is between whether you spend an eternity in heaven in the presence of God or in hell in torment and paying for your sin is what will you do with Jesus Christ? Because he paid that penalty for your sin. And that's all intertwined into this story here. As I sometimes search for words, I thought it was funny that Ben would ask me for a word because the older I get, the more I find. And sometimes I'll say something in a sermon and somebody says, did you mean to use that word? And I'm like, no, I meant to use this word. Did I use that word? But as we look at this story, that word forgiveness is key. There's no other word that you can replace it with. And Jesus Christ's authority in this story is key. As you look at the story of the paralytic man, it's not so so much about a man who's given the ability to walk again. No, it's there. This is a story about the authority of Jesus Christ. This is Mark building on his whole theme. Again, you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, and Mark said what? Mark said, this is a book about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean? He's talking to a group of Roman people, and he's going to bring them to the point of, what does it mean to be the Son of God? And what he's going to cover today is key. Jesus Christ is God. He's not just a created being of God. He's just not a good prophet. He's just not whatever you fill in the blank as an angelic being. Jesus Christ is very God, and we're going to see that brought out early in his ministry, and we're going to find that this is going to be the first thing that begins to create conflict with the religious leaders of his day. The interesting thing, if you look at Mark chapter 1, you see healings, you see teaching, you see crowds, But the one thing you don't see yet in the gospel is conflict yet. Is conflict coming? We're about to start the passage. Mark chapter 2 through the end of chapter 3, some have called the at least first step in the gospel of Mark of conflict in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Because as he makes it more and more apparent to people, not only what he's doing, not only the message that he's bringing, but who he is, there's conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And so that conflict is going to begin as we look, and it's going to revolve around this whole idea of the forgiveness of sin. Now, I love reading MacArthur's commentary because he alliterates everything. And I just, I tried that early on in my ministry, and I had to stretch so hard, it hurt so bad, I just gave up. But as he looked at this passage, I thought it was an interesting way to break it down. First of all, he said, we're going to look at the curious spectators, the crowd that's there. Then the crippled sinner, then the compassionate Savior, and then the calloused scribes. And 
keep those four groups in mind because those four groups are all going to react a little bit differently in this story. And especially the three groups that are going to react with a compassionate Savior as we look and see what's happening here. And again, how is it happening? And why is there conflict between the religious leaders of his day and between Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is going to make some significant authority claims in these next few chapters. He's already begun in chapter 1. And that's going to fuel some of these things. But his claims in this chapter, number one, he's going to claim the authority to forgive sins. That's blasphemy in the Jewish religion, unless you're God. He's going to claim the authority later on to tell you what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. And that was almost more blasphemy. It shouldn't have been, but the Sabbath was more sacred. They had all kinds of rules that they'd established for the Sabbath. And Jesus Christ is going to come and say, this is what it's supposed to be about. This is what the Sabbath is all about. And then he's going to go on and he's going to talk about, and some of us struggle with this, so I I shouldn't tread there, but I'm going to anyway. He's going to talk about all the religious rituals. And he's going to bring those rituals back to the point that they're worthless without faith that's actively seeking to worship God. Do we have rituals? We're a Baptist church. Baptists don't have rituals, do they? We've got rituals. I'll tell you what. I run into more rituals every time. Most of the time when somebody asks me what we're going to do or not going to do during a certain season of the the year is because I haven't fulfilled one of the rituals that are there. And Jesus Christ is going to look at the Jewish religion, which was very steeped in rituals, and say it's not about the rituals. It's about the relationship. Now, was there a problem with all the rituals? God establishes many of them. And they're to bring our hearts and minds to him. But the rituals are worthless unless it brings our hearts and minds to him. If they give us warm, fuzzy feelings and make us feel good about ourselves, religious rituals are worthless. They're supposed to bring our hearts and minds to a point where we are worshiping and concentrating on him. And so Jesus is going to attack all of these things. And it's going to be interesting to watch the evolution of this in the lives of the scribes and Pharisees. As we look at this passage, it begins with internal mental reservations. They're thinking of themselves, who does this guy think he is? It's amazing, after they think to themselves, who does this guy think he is? Jesus says, I know exactly what you're thinking in their heart. Shouldn't that have been an indication that, uh uh-oh, something's different here? You ever listen to somebody and smile and nod, but what's going on in your head isn't smiling and nodding? They didn't get away with that with Jesus Christ. He looked and he knew exactly what, and he's going to address exactly what they're saying. So it's going to go from this internal reservation about who he is and what he's doing to a conspiracy plot to destroy him and to kill him at the end of chapter 3. So watch as this all happens and see what it is about Christ that makes that take place. That brings us to our passage this morning in chapter 2, verse 1. It says, When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. Now again, put this back into the context of what we've been teaching and preaching going through Mark so far. When he returned to Capernaum, why did he leave Capernaum in the first place? He began his ministry there. He was in the synagogue. He cast out the demon in the synagogue. He went to Peter's mother-in-law's home, maybe Peter's home. We're not sure who actually owned the home, but his mother-in-law is there. And he heals his mother-in-law. And he's having a wonderful family time until 6 o'clock at night and the Sabbath's over. And suddenly the place is mobbed with people who want to be healed. And so Jesus heals and touches every one of them. Again, that, that just amazes me. At the end of a busy day, Jesus Christ is not phased by the crowds. He loves people. 
He ministers to people. And then he takes care of the spiritual needs even in his own life. Because rising up a great while before day, he goes into a desolate place for prayer. And then Peter finds him and says, Lord, they're all waiting for you. And he said, yeah, we're going to leave him waiting. We're about to go to other cities where we need to preach because that's what I'm up to. So he spent some time in Galilee. He's been preaching in Galilee. How long? It just says for, after some days. Mark's not going to tell us exactly. And even if you look at the other Gospels, all we know is that he left Capernaum. He spent some days, might have been weeks, might have been a few months. But he spent time in Galilee, preaching the word throughout. And then he comes back to Capernaum. After all this going on, and it's interesting when he comes back to Capernaum because there's a lot of things to contrast here. The first time he was at Capernaum, he ministers at the synagogue. The next time we see him in these verses, he's ministering in someone's home. The last time he was here, they marveled at his authority to teach and to cast out an unclean spirit. And this time they're going to marvel at his authority to heal and forgive sins. It's going up a notch. Last time... He claimed to have greater authority than the scribes. This time he's going to demonstrate it. So all of this is going on as we get to chapter 2 in that little phrase that he returned to Capernaum after some days. After healing the leper, after doing all this preaching, he comes back. And look at what does it say at the end of that verse. Don't miss that. It was reported that he was at home. Where was he? Most commentators believe he went right back to Peter's home. Peter, Andrew, mother-in-law, that's where he went. Because when we look at Jesus Christ, he said, the foxes have their holes and the birds have their nests, but the Son of Man hath not to lay down his head. So he didn't own a home. But all of that that had happened, and you think of the relationship that had been built between he and Peter's family, Andrew's family, the mother-in-law that he healed. Now he comes back, and when he comes back into Capernaum, the place that he centers his ministry up there in Galilee, he goes to that house, and that house feels like home. Because they love Jesus Christ. Because they respected Jesus Christ. Because there was a worship for Christ in that home. And again, without going far afield from the passage, I have to ask myself, would Jesus Christ be able to say, if he came to Hendersonville and stayed with me, he was at home? He ought to be at home. And there's a whole message there, but it's not really here, so we're not going to preach it this morning. But you look at that, and he comes there, and he's at home, and then it says, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, and even at the door. And he was preaching to them the word. Many were gathered together. The question is, what's attracting them here? The first time he was in Capernaum, they were attracted by what? The healing, the miracles. Scripture kind of points to a little bit different reason for it here at the end of verse 2. And it says, he was preaching the word to them. They were all gathered. They jammed into the house. We don't know how big the house was, but the house was so full that the Scripture tells us that even if you got outside by the doors, you couldn't really get very close. People were there, and they were there because Jesus Christ was preaching the word to them. Mark's going to use that phrase over and over again in his gospel. Because Jesus Christ said, that's why I came. I didn't come to do any miracles, so I'm doing them. But my miracles are authenticating my message, and I came for the message because I came to seek and to save those who are lost. And Jesus never loses focus of that message. And he's preaching that message. Can you imagine Jesus preaching the word? I mean, you go to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, and it says about the word that it's living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, discerning thoughts and intents of the heart. Can you imagine what the Savior does when he takes the word and he already knows the thoughts of your heart and he applies it? 
Is it any wonder that the people would look and say, he preaches with authority like the scribes don't have? Because he's preaching from the word. And 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us a little bit more about why that word is so important. It says that the word of God is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Jesus Christ is preaching the word because in the word we find everything that we need for life and godliness. It's good for teaching, for doctrine. It'll teach us what's right. It's good for reproof. It'll teach us what's wrong in our lives. We call that stepping on our toes. Sometimes we don't like it, but God's using it to make us more like his son. And then not only does it reprove us, but it's good for correction. Anybody ever tell you you were doing the wrong thing, but never told you how to get it right? This book tells you how to get it right. And then it goes on and says, it'll tell you how to keep it right. It's good for training in righteousness. You want to know what's important to God? Get in this book. It's there. The teaching, the truth is there. The reproof is there. The Spirit of God will use it to convict your heart and show you where you're not like Christ. The correction is there. He'll take it and apply it to your personal life to teach you what you need to do to get it right. And then if you keep studying, he'll tell you how to keep it right. And so all of these things, Jesus with the word is preaching the word and attracting people to him because the word changes lives. Remember that when you're not here on Sunday morning. I hope you're getting the word on Sunday morning. If you're not, you need to find a new preacher. But in our day and age, there are so many preachers out there on the internet. You all have your, your favorite ones. You know, you, always, you all make me feel bad when I'm walking down the aisle. Did you hear so-and-so this morning? He had a great message. I thought, uh-oh. You know, or did you? And some of them are great preachers. Don't get me wrong. If they're preaching the word, grab it, run with it, learn all you can. Some of them are just great orators and very entertaining. And that's not what Jesus Christ did. You've got to find people, if you're going to spend time listening to this book, that preach this book, that don't preach their ideas, that don't preach their opinions, that don't get stuck on the politics even of our day, but that preach how this word affects our lives, maybe in the politics of our day, maybe in the circumstances of where you are right now today, but find people who preach the word because when Jesus Christ went out, he preached the word, and that's what drew people to him. The healing drew people, all those. But as Mark talks about this chapter, he said, Jesus Christ was there and he was preaching the word. And then not only do we have this whole setting, but now we have a setback. Isn't it discouraging when things seem to be going just right the way they ought to in your life spiritually? And suddenly there's a setback, a roadblock, a bump in the road. If you're from Buffalo, New York, a big pothole that you just went through and ruined your car, you know, whatever it is. We're about to see the setback in this, in this passage because in verse 3 it says, And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. They came. Who are they? I, I, I read, there's a parallel passage in Mark, so I read Mark, and you know what it says? They came. But Luke, he, Luke's got lots of details. So I read Luke, Luke chapter 5. And you know what Luke says? They came. You know what we find out? You know what we know about this whole situation? There's five men. Four carrying a litter and one paralytic. And we don't know anything more about them. That's important and keep that in mind as we go through this. Because we're never told. Were they friends? Were they family? All we know about them as we look in verse 5. And we're going to talk about this in a minute. But their faith prompts Jesus to act. Can you imagine? Does your faith, as you pray, as you work, as you serve, does it ever prompt Jesus to be able to fulfill the promises he's made to folks? That's what's going to happen in this passage as we look at this. And the interesting thing about this is, 
these four men, Jesus sees their faith in action. As he looks at the scribes, how does he know what's going on? It's going on in their hearts. They're not playing their cards, so to speak, yet. They're not laying it out there yet, but Jesus knows. When he looks at the four friends, does Jesus have to read it in their hearts to see their faith? And we're going to look at the story. He sees their faith active, just like James says our faith ought to be. And he looks at that, and he's encouraged by that. So we're going to see this. And I had to ask myself as I looked at this whole thing, how come they don't get a mention? Peter gets a mention, and he messes up all the time. We get no mess up with these guys, as far as we know. We don't know anything about their lives other than this. But they get no mention. Mary spends money on this wonderful perfume and breaks it and and pours it over Christ, preparing him for his uh, burial. And Jesus Christ told her what? Told the guys, leave her alone because wherever the gospel is preached, she'll be remembered by name. We, We remember Mary. We don't know who these guys are. You know what it caused me to do? It caused me to ask, as a minister, as a servant, for you as a disciple of Jesus Christ, are you willing to serve if nobody knows what you did? If nobody remembers, it was you. These men have no notoriety other than the fact that they're mentioned as, and they came. Could be any day in the world, but there they are, and they came. And are you willing to serve in such a way that the attention goes to Jesus Christ, the glory goes to God, and somebody else has helped, and nobody else knows who was involved with it? That's not the American way. When we do something nice, we like people to know about it. Now, we try to make sure that we can get it out to people without being too upfront about it. But when you do something nice for somebody, do you like it to be hidden in the back? You know, you take care of somebody's need, whether it's financial, whether you just showed up and did what you needed to do. And and afterwards, you finish it all, you feel real good about it. But then if you're not careful, you start thinking about, now, who knows that I did that? Somebody needs to know that I'm a great guy. These are people that don't think I'm a very good guy. This, the, these guys had none of that going on. A paralyzed man is brought into the presence of Jesus with four friends, and those four friends will not be deterred. Look at the passage again. They came bringing a paralytic man carried by four men. What did they expect to do? What were these men expecting? Bring this paralytic man in on the litter, walk up to Jesus, set him down, and Jesus was going to do What? He's going to heal him. He's going to get up and what? We don't have to. They're, they're thinking probably all the way. And again, this is just my imagination. But they're probably thinking, we don't have to carry him home. We've got to carry him there. He's walking home. It's going to be great. Because they believed. How do you know? Jesus saw their faith. They had no intent of carrying this man home. They didn't think they were going to need to. So we see this all coming together here as they come. And as they come, they were committed. Because they come to the house and what do they find? They're not carrying this man up to Jesus. They aren't even going to get him in the door. Mark already said, you can't even get near the door. Everybody's listening to him preach. And they're enthralled with what's going on. And they're just not going to cut loose and make make an aisle. Let him go up through there. And so we continue reading because these men didn't let those things happen. They knew that they had to find an opening to Jesus. And if there wasn't one, it had to be made. The description of their faith was that they were willing to remove any obstacle, even a roof if necessary, to get to Jesus Christ. Because at the heart of their faith, they knew that the answer to this man's problems, though they didn't really understand the full scope of his problem, they knew the answer was found in Jesus Christ. And they didn't let anything stop them. And again, I look at that, and I look at that at Christmas time. Christmas time ought to be about Christ. 
Are there obstacles in our society to sharing Christ with folks? Well, they're getting more every day. Are there obstacles in our Christmas tradition to sharing about Christ to folks? You know, it's not a coincidence. I, I, I started looking at some of these things this week again. You know, where do we get all our traditions from? You know, Santa Claus. And some call him Satan Claus. You can do whatever you want with that. But Santa, where did it come from? And why is he such a big deal at Christmas when it doesn't say Santamus? It says Christmas. But the idea of Santa Claus, you say, well, we're too old for it. We know the whole Santa Claus business. Okay, we got that game down. Yeah, but you're still going to go out and buy each other gifts and throw them under the tree and give each other gifts on somebody else's. Who else's birthday did we do that on? Oh, there's good theological. Okay, you can have that, but I don't think so. We get distracted. We're more distracted about decorating and buying gifts and making meals and getting together with folks and doing all these things than we are with the Savior who is born in a manger. And that's not by mistake. You don't think the devil would love God's people to be so caught up in their own rituals and traditions that they forget what the true meaning of Christmas is all about? We never forget that. Well, does our faith demonstrate it like these five guys? Are you making a beeline for Christ this Christmas time? Or are you so busy with everything else you're hoping to fit him in on Christmas morning for a few minutes? Sometimes if you get a chance to read the Christmas story with your family, it's the only time Christ pops up during the day. Let's remember who it's all about. That's what these guys are doing. They say, it's about Jesus. We've got to get these guys to Jesus. So they look at verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they went home and dropped the guy off at home. That's what some of us would have done. We would have looked at him and said, sorry, bud. We tried. You see that crowd. There ain't no getting through that crowd. You really do need Jesus, but good luck to you. I hope some of you get, to get with him sometime in the future. What, what do they do? Look at what they did. It says, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. Okay, and again, it's good to understand what's actually going on here. Because you've got houses that are a little bit different than our houses. Okay, if they'd have climbed up on my roof, they'd have probably slid off at 30 feet off the back and they would have had four paralytics to go with the paralytic they were carrying. But in Jesus' day, those houses were constructed as such that there were stone steps up the outside of many of the houses. And the tops were much like a deck that we would use today where they would go up and they would get out of all of the confusion and the busyness and they could dry laundry up there. They could meditate. There's times in Scripture where people go up on top of their roofs to pray. You know, they're not sitting at the peak. They're on top of this flat roof. But the one thing these roofs did not have was an entrance down below. And so the men take this paralytic. They carry him up the stairs. They get him up the stairs with the litter they brought him on because they're about to use it again. And remember whose house they're at? Most theologians believe this is Peter's house. They tear apart the roof on Peter's house. Is that a good idea? Do you remember who Peter was? And again... None of the gospel writers give us a lot of the details about what's going on. But I can imagine Peter was probably there if it's his house. And in the midst of Jesus talking, you know, suddenly he feels some dirt on the back of his neck. And suddenly he hears noise up on the roof. And he's like, oh, I got critters up there. He had critters up there, all right. And those roofs were made so that they were like thatched roofs. And the branches were put together over the top of the beams. And then there was a mud that was coated on top of that to harden so that it would give them a kind of a stability up there. And so what these men did, they dug through the mud. 
The house is full of people. Guess who's getting a shower of dirt underneath them? And these folks don't care. Not that they're being nasty, but they, they're focused. And they remove the sticks. And again, we don't get that. I love what the word in Greek actually means. When it says that they removed the roof, it literally means they unroofed the roof. If it was there, they took it out of the way. And they made a big hole in the roof. Can you imagine Peter now? He's adding up what it's going to cost to fix this hole in the roof, and he's not even fishing anymore. This is not a good thing. We never told who fixes the roof. Who pays for this? They destroyed. It's not in their scope of thinking at all. Because all they can think of is what? My friend needs Jesus Christ. How would your life change if all you could think about was my friends need Jesus Christ? Because watch what Christ is going to do for them. They open up the room and then they lay the bed down on which the paralytic lay. They, 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 they laid it right down through the opening. Put, now again, what have you got here? What did Luke tell us? Or what did Mark tell us? This house is packed. You can't even get in the door. When this thing starts coming out, guess what? Again, sanctified imagination maybe, but I kind of start chuckling because I'm thinking, people are going to start backing up, but what's happening to the people behind them? They're getting knocked backwards until you get to the door. And what's happening? Those people are getting shoved out the door because they're making room for this guy who's coming down. Can you imagine what their reaction is? Wait a minute. I got here four hours early. They weren't Baptists to get the front seat. Okay, and then, now I'm getting pushed out of the way. But what are these jokers doing? And then they watch this guy being, and they kind of understand, I think, when the guy's being lowered down, there was probably a hush that came over the room. And then when you see all of that, you see the next step. Look at verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, Jesus is encouraged by their faith. Their faith inspires their actions. And it's interesting, as Luke is teaching about who Jesus is and what our reaction needs to be, this is his first mention of faith. And it's not an interior, subjective, warm, fuzzy feeling. It's a faith that's so strong, it leads to action. Because Mark's a book of action. Immediately, immediately, immediately. Even here you're going to see more immediately as we go through the story. And he looks, you see the immediate action of these folks. And we know nothing about the beliefs of these friends except that they had faith in Jesus Christ. They had enough faith in Jesus Christ and enough love for their friend that they did some things that were probably culturally unacceptable. I doubt many people ripped holes in other people's roofs around Jerusalem to see Jesus Christ. But here they are doing these things. And as we look, this faith is kind of defined here. It is defined by Mark in this story, at least, as an act of trust that Jesus is sufficient for one's deepest and most heartfelt needs. That man could not walk. Those friends loved him enough to say, Jesus is the only one who can meet your need, and I'm getting it to him. There's a lesson in that for us. There's a lesson for us, and there's a lesson for us as we deal with the people around us. It's not enough to tell people they should read the Bible, although it's a good thing. It's not enough to invite people to come to church, although I love it when you do that. It's a good thing. But at the heart of it all is we need to take people to Jesus because it's not the church and it's not just the Bible that's going to say, it's Jesus Christ is going to make a difference. They need to find the Jesus of the Bible. They need to understand what this says about him and believe it and trust in it. And we need to bring our friends to this to show them Christ. Why do you do the things you do? Don't tell them your church teaches you to do that. You know, why don't you do some of the stuff we do? Don't tell well, my family brought me up that way. Have the nerve to look at somebody. I do that because I love Jesus Christ. And I want my life to glorify him. And take him to the story like these four men. 
Because at the end of this story, people are going to glorify God, not because they dug a hole in the roof, because they had faith in Jesus Christ. Does your faith in Jesus Christ impact anyone around you? It ought to. And so we see all this taking place, and then we see something very, and as a kid, this bothered me. You've got four friends who climbed the steps, dug a hole in Peter's roof. If Peter can get out of the crowd, they're probably in trouble. You know, and then drop this guy down, and they lay him in front of Jesus. And what's the expectation? As a six-year-old sitting here hearing this the first time, I knew exactly what the expectation What are you expecting? Jesus is going to heal this guy. This guy's a paralytic. They brought him in. They dropped him down for one purpose. So Jesus would heal him. And Jesus looks at him in compassion. Look at what he says. He said to the paralytic son. Now that word son, it it is an endearing term. It's also a term that's used in the Greek and in the Hebrew. It's equivalent of somebody who has power and authority over someone else and is about to do something benevolent and kind for them. And so he looks down and he says, son, in a very endearing way. And then he says, take up your bed and walk. That's what we're expecting, isn't it? He said, son, your sins are forgiven. And then I looked at the passage and I said, okay, what's next? He's done for now. He looks, he says, why did Jesus Christ not fulfill the expectation? Everybody sitting around there thought, what? If you were in that house, what were you expecting? Jesus is going to do a miracle. Get ready. We've seen this before. This guy's walking out of here. And he's laying in the bed, and Jesus in compassion reaches down and looks at him and says, Son, your sins are forgiven you. Why did Jesus do that? There's several reasons in our passage, but number one, Jesus is about to meet that man's greatest need. You look at him, and we think his greatest need is what? This guy needs to be able to walk. Jesus looks at him and says, this guy has an eternal soul that will spend eternity in hell without my forgiveness. And we don't know what went on in the heart of the man. We don't know what his friends were thinking. We don't don't even see the man confessing, but Jesus looks at him, knowing this man's heart, and says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And I read a lot of commentators, and this is where you've got to take commentators with a grain of salt. Because a lot of them say, well, you know, he must have been paralyzed because of his sin. It doesn't say that. But we have to say that because we've got this picture that this is what Jesus needs to do. And I think in our own lives, we've learned a great lesson from this. Our greatest needs are spiritual, not physical. But our prayer list is 90% physical and 10% spiritual. And we don't realize that we're hitting needs, but not the greatest needs. Jesus Christ looked at this man and said, your greatest need is spiritual. Let me take care of the greatest need you will ever have. Your sins are forgiven. Have you taken care of that need? We'll talk about that as we finish, but faith is believing that Jesus Christ can do that. He reaches out. He meets his physical need, but not his spiritual need. And I thought, forget the crowd. Forget the four friends. Can you imagine the four friends on the roof right now? We tore apart the roof for that. He could have waited on that. No, he couldn't. Can you imagine what the people standing around? They're expecting to watch this guy walk out. And it's like, whoa, that's disappointing. All he did was forgive his sins. But you look at this and what Jesus has done, and you say, the biggest, other than Christ, participant in this is whom? What's going through the mind of the paralytic? When he was being lowered down the roof, to the roof, and down in front of Jesus Christ, what's going through his mind? 
Jesus is going to heal me physically. Jesus reaches down and heals him spiritually. I can't tell you what's going through his mind. But I know that Jesus has met his greatest need at this point, whether he knows it or not. And then we find another reason that Jesus does this. Jesus isn't just trying to frustrate the paralytic man or his friends. Jesus has a point to all this. So look at verses 6 and 7. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? You remember what Mark said in the beginning of his book again. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Did the scribes understand what Mark was trying to say? They didn't get it. Or they didn't want to get it. Did the people sitting in that house even understand what it meant to be the Son of God as this paralytic's being lowered down? They knew he was some kind of prophet and he could do miracles. But who forgives sin? God and God alone. And so here this man is brought down and the scribes are looking and say, This isn't God. And he's just forgiven sin. Something's wrong here. Because only God can forgive sin. You know the interesting thing about that? When the scribes in their hearts looked and said, who does this guy think he is? They were wrong. But when they said only God can forgive sin, they were spot on. Only God can forgive your sin. It's not the good things you do. It's not getting all these things right in your life. It's only God who can reach down and forgive sin that has been destined for hell. And when Jesus looks down and he forgives their sin, they're looking and saying in their challenge, only God can do that. Who does he think he is? And so that brings us to the wonderful conclusion of this story. Immediately, here's Mark again, immediately, Jesus doesn't waste any time. Perceiving in his spirit what they could thus question within themselves, he said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? It's very likely because of their religious position in that day that the scribes were at the front of that crowd listening to Jesus. And Jesus looks at those scribes who just started thinking, who does he think he is? Only God can do that. That's blasphemy. They haven't said a word. And Jesus looks at him and says, why do you think these things in your heart? Shouldn't that have caught their attention already? How did he know that? I just started thinking that. I don't even think it had time to hit my face yet. And Jesus already knows. Not only that, he says, which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven. Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, and we're going to look what he says in a minute, but the question is, why is this done the way it is? Jesus looks and says, what is easier? Did he say what's easier to do, forgive sins or heal? He doesn't. He said, what is easier to say? Why does he do it that way? Because when you look, did they know Jesus could heal? Everybody in that house was expecting that man to walk out of there. Because they'd seen him heal in Capernaum. They saw him stick around at the house and touch everyone that came and heal them without exception. And they were expecting that. But Jesus looks and said, what's easier to say? Where's your faith? Because when I say your sins are forgiven you, how do you know? If I look at this man and say, get up and walk, you've got the evidence right there. If I say your sins are forgiven, now it takes faith. And Jesus looks and says, so that you might have faith so that you might believe, so that you will know that the Son of Man is God. I'm going to give you a demonstration. And he sets this all up because Jesus wants them to know. Isn't that amazing? The scribes are going to be his mortal enemies. Does he know that? He does. He healed a leper, and what did he say? where did he send him? Go to Jerusalem because I want them to see the evidence of who I am. I want them to know. 
He comes here and he says, not only am I going to forgive your sins, but I'm going to heal you because I want the scribes and all around to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that I am who I say I am. So verse 11, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed, glorifying God and saying, we never saw anything like this. When Jesus Christ looks at that man and says, rise, take up your bed and walk, immediately he gets up. How long had he been paralyzed? We don't know. But we know he couldn't get there by himself. And he gets up and he packs up his bed. And now think of these people standing there amazed. The place is still packed. And Jesus said, go home. And they just part. So he can walk on out of the place. And he goes home. And the people are standing there. And they're standing there in what? They're standing there amazed. Amazed at the power of Jesus Christ. Amazed at the power of Jesus Christ to change a life. And probably still not getting the full thought about the fact that Jesus Christ changed that man's life in ways that they weren't even thinking about. When he said, your sins are forgiven you. That's the greatest gift. If he'd have left him paralyzed for the rest of his life, he'd already given him the greatest gift he could give him. But then on top of that, he says, so everybody will know that I have the power to do that as a foreshadow of what I'm about to do as I go through my ministry and give my life a ransom for many so that everyone, get up and walk, take your bed and go home. And he gets up and he takes his bed and he goes home. And not only are they amazed, but they're doing what? They're glorifying God. Jesus Christ didn't do miracles for his own glory. He's God, I get that. But so that God the Father would be glorified, he did all that he did. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. Why? So that God would receive the glory. He gave his life on Calvary. Remember Gethsemane? If this cup can pass for me, let it pass. But not my will, but yours be done. And God received the glory for that too. And God wants the glory from our lives as well. And he's only going to get the glory from our lives, number one, if we put our faith and trust, first of all, in Jesus Christ for forgiveness. Do you believe he forgives sin? Alone? That you don't have to do anything? There's people headed to hell today because they don't believe Jesus Christ can forgive sin alone, so they have to do all these good works and add it to it. The good works ought to be because of what happened inside us, not to make what's inside us acceptable to God. God's already done that in Christ if we put our faith and trust in him. Have you done that? Secondly, Is your faith visible by your actions? Whatever else you say about these four guys, their faith is visible. They believe there was no hope without Jesus Christ. They tore about Peter's roof. I still want to know what Peter did afterwards. Did he run him down? Was he okay with it? It doesn't say Jesus miraculously fixed the hole in the roof. Something had to happen. But these guys did what they had to do to get the friend to Jesus Christ. What are you doing to bring your friends to Jesus Christ? There's some simple things you can do. There's just Christmas tracks out on the rack out there. If there's Christmas tracks out on the rack out there on December 26th, we failed. They don't do any good on the rack. They're there so you could take them, give them to your friends, talk to them about Jesus Christ, because there's no greater thing you can do for folks this season than take them to Jesus Christ. But it's probably going to take getting out of your comfort zone. It's going to take effort. Pastor, you know how busy I am. I have this gathering and that to make and this to do and that to buy. You remember when we started? Satan loves our trappings. He loves our decorations. He loves our Christmas caroling as long as we don't share the Christ of the carols. Will you take anybody to Christ this season? And then, 
Are you willing to serve without recognition for the good of others and the glory of God? God wants to use us. But if you have to be patted on the back and given accolades, I know lots of people who used to serve and they say, nobody cares. doesn't matter if anybody else cares. God sees. God's glorified. When you do just a little act to be a servant to somebody else, God's glorified. And that's how we ought to live our lives. That's what Christmas, Christmas ought to be all about, our faith, bringing folks to Christ, and serving God whatever the cost, and whoever, if nobody else knows, that's okay with us, as long as God is glorified. Will we learn the lessons from this paralytic man? Let's pray. Father, we truly do thank you for who you are, for the way that we read these stories, and some of them are so familiar to us, we miss the reason that they're there. Lord, help us not to miss the reason that this story is here. It's a story of faith. It's a story of forgiveness. It's a story of the fact that there is hope in the Savior. And Lord, help us, like those four men, to do all that we can to bring people to Jesus Christ because he is the answer to their greatest need. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.